Amen. You may be seated. I invite you to take out your Bibles and turn with me in Acts chapter 9. We are continuing our way through the text this morning. My microphone is doing weird things. Don't know what I'm doing. This happens sometimes. It's always a little interesting when it does. <laughs> anyway, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles. Uh, I just want to draw your attention to one particular verse, and then we will pray, we'll ask the Lord to help, and we will, we will get to work. Uh, the verse in particular I want to draw your attention to, verse 21, all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? Let's pray and ask God's help. Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. And we pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes to see exactly what it is that we have in your son. Father, if there are any here this morning who are struggling with their past, who are timid or fearful of sharing their faith in you as a result of being known for what their life was like before they met you. I pray, God, that you would, through this word this morning, strengthen and encourage their hearts. And I pray, God, that you'd bring conviction on all of us, that we would celebrate and rejoice the salvation that we have in your son, Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Jeffrey Dahmer was one of the most famous and notorious serial killers ever known in American history. And part of the reason he became so well known was the astonishing number of victims that he killed. At least 17 young men and teenage boys between the years of 1978 and 1991 were murdered by Jeffrey Dahmer. Another reason for his infamy was uh, the particular nature of the way in which he killed his victims. He stored the body parts of many of them in his apartment, and it was later determined that he had engaged to a certain extent in cannibalism. We encounter this with appropriate horror, and we should be shocked at the vile nature of these crimes. Hey, Lydia, why don't we just go with the pulpit mic? Is that okay? Thanks. We should be shocked at the horrific nature of these crimes, but perhaps what you have not heard is that it is alleged that shortly before his death in November of 1994, Dahmer surrendered his life to Christ. Reading from the Milwaukee Sentinel, the uh, May uh, 1994 issue, 12, 12 May 1994, in an article by Stephen Walters entitled Dahmer is Baptized in Prison Tub, we discover that a Madison minister by the name of Roy Ratcliffe uh, began meeting with Dahmer during the months of April and May of uh, 1994, several years after he'd been convicted and sentenced to 17 life sentences in prison. Uh, it, is, it is reported that Dahmer was baptized as a result of his faith in Christ. The ceremony was attended by this minister, Roy Ratcliffe, as well as the uh, state chaplain and two additional guards. They used the whirlpool in the infirmary, 
and uh, it took place on a Tuesday. An assistant to the prison warden confirmed that the baptism took place, but he offered no, di- no further details, stating it is a personal matter. Ratcliffe, Roy Ratcliffe, was the minister of the, at the time of the 100-member Church of Christ there in Madison, Wisconsin, and he said that he began making plans to baptize Dahmer after a one-hour meeting that he had had with him on the 10th of April. Ratcliffe goes on to say that he states, he goes on to state that he believes Dahmer made a true spiritual decision to trust in Jesus and to be baptized. He says, and I quote, he was able to convince me that this wasn't just a gag. It was something that he truly felt and believed in. I was convinced that he wanted God in his life, and so as a result of that, after meeting with him for a couple of hours in a room, we spent time beginning to plan how we would go about baptizing him. Dahmer wasn't a Christian in this life for long. Baptized in April of 1994, he met his demise in November of 1994, the day after Thanksgiving. He was beaten to death by a fellow prisoner in the, as they were cleaning the washrooms of the prison gymnasium. When we encounter an individual like Dahmer, a serial killer who's murdered multiple individuals, and when we begin to look at the particularly grisly and gruesome nature in which he murdered these individuals, we can't help but wonder if there was some ulterior motive to his alleged profession of faith in Christ. After all, we have a number of uh, different individuals in our congregation who work as uh, corrections officers here in, in Kamloops, and they will tell you that uh, very regularly inmates will, as a pretense, show that they're attempting to reform their life in order to merit some leniency or some additional uh, benefits and some additional privileges in terms of their, their time in the, in the jail there. And so as we encounter Dahmer, uh, this serial killer who for not just one or two years and not just for one or two victims, but over the course of a decade and a half and 17 different victims murdered and then even ate portions of his victims, we encounter that and we say, is it possible, is it possible for someone of that particular nature guilty of those particularly heinous sins and crimes to truly, truly be convicted and to come to faith in Christ and, as a result, be forgiven of his sins. Many wonder, as they look at Dahmer, whether or not he actually came to Christ or if it wasn't just some sort of a ruse on his part. Without, without stating equivocally one way or the other whether or not Dahmer was saved, what I want you to know this morning from the Word of God is that someone of those particular crimes, someone of that type of heinous sin nature, absolutely can be saved. In the first century, Saul of Tarsus to the Christian church would have been similar to a Jeffrey Dahmer of our day and age. As we've been walking through the book of Acts, Last week and last couple of weeks, we considered the conversion of Saul of Tarsus in Acts chapter 9, how he was on his way to Damascus and how he came to faith in Christ as a result of Christ's appearing to him in a bright light on the road to Damascus. Christians were skeptical of his conversion the same way that you and I might be skeptical of Dahmer's conversion. 
Ananias was called directly by the Lord to go to Saul of Tarsus to baptize him and, and to begin to disciple him. And, of course, Ananias' response to the Lord is, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done. Ananias' response is, I don't want to go talk to this guy. He's not really a Christian. Surely he's not fully converted. I mean, I don't buy this. And the Lord's response was, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles, before kings and the children of Israel. And so the Lord had, in fact, saved Saul. And he did call Ananias to go to Saul and to begin to minister to him. But Christians weren't the only ones that found Saul's profession of faith to be just a bit incredulous. In fact, Jews, the very people to whom Saul was called to go and to minister among the Gentiles and others, they also found his profession of faith to be incredible. And so this morning as we look at this text, the question that I pose to us is all of us having a history of being in rebellion against the Lord. Can we trust the Lord to work through our testimony despite whatever our past looks like? In fact, that's what we find happening right here in Acts chapter 9. Beginning at the tail end of verse 19, it says, Taking food, Saul was strengthened. This is just after he's been baptized by Ananias. It says, for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. He doesn't give us an exact time frame. And if you're looking at this particular passage in conjunction with Paul's own testimony in the book of Galatians, there is some room to wonder whether or not it was during this period that he made his excursion over into uh, Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia, Arabia at that time extending as far north as Damascus. The question is, did he perhaps make his escape over there? There's some question regarding the timeline. We don't know exactly how many days Saul was with these disciples or if he made an excursion over into Arabia. But what Luke wants us to understand is that here, after having been called by the Lord to go and to preach the faith to the Gentiles, Luke leaves no doubt in our mind that Saul was faithful to that calling on his life. It says, for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, verse 20, and the word is used immediately. He proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. Saul did not beat around the bush. He did not wait around. He went straight to work. And so even though we can get into these, these comparisons between Acts chapter uh, 9 and Galatians, where Paul talks about going into Arabia, the fact is he was busy preaching the name of Jesus. He got to work in the synagogues. He went back to the very group of people that he was representing as he was attempting to persecute the faith, as he was attempting to eradicate the name of Jesus. Now, if you and I come out of tragic, sinful backgrounds, and we are called by Christ to witness to his salvation in our life, you and me both often wonder where we might go to share about Christ. You and me both, we think, how will I meet someone to tell someone about Jesus? How can I go out into the community and shake hands and get to know someone in order to share my faith in Jesus? And what we all seem to neglect is that in all of our lives, God has already given us friends, family, co-workers. We say, oh, I can't tell them about Jesus. Well, why not? Well, because they know me. They know who I used to be. 
Well, they knew who Saul was as well. Saul proclaims Christ in the synagogues immediately. And verse 20 says, verse 21 says, All who heard him were amazed, and they said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this particular name? I mean, they, they encounter Saul's preaching of Jesus, and the first question that they ask is, Wait a second. This guy is here preaching Jesus. He's here in Damascus preaching Jesus. Isn't this the very same guy who just came here to Damascus to eradicate the church that was proclaiming Jesus? How is it now that this man who is trying to persecute Christians and wipe out this heretical group from off the face of the earth now preaching the name of Jesus? They ask two questions. Isn't this the guy from Jerusalem who made havoc? And he goes on, has he not come here for this purpose as well, to bring, bound, to bring them bound before the chief priests, Christians? They're incredulous. Luke uses the word amazed. And I want you to understand, this is a significant word. It comes from the Greek word existanto. Now, there are multiple words in the Greek language that can convey shock or surprise. Existanto is a Greek word from which we get our English word existentialism. I mean, this is not simply that they're shocked or surprised. They're questioning the nature of reality. That's how much emotional weight is packaged into this particular word. Luke is using the strongest possible word in the Greek language. It, the word literally means to cause to be in a state of confusion in which reality makes little or no sense at all. They're like, what? I mean, they're not just simply surprised. Oh, hey, Saul is here preaching Jesus, they are dumbfounded. They are gobsmacked. Saul of Tarsus, who is trying to eradicate the name of Jesus, is preaching Jesus. Did we hear that right? Are we, are we, did something happen? Did we wake up in the twilight zone? I mean, that's kind of the nature of their surprise, their shock at what's taking place here. It's not all that dissimilar. It's kind of a reverse parallel to the boy who cried wolf. Uh, the, the, I'm sure you've heard the, the story of the boy who cried wolf. There was a boy one day entrusted to keep watch over the sheep, and uh, he got bored watching over the sheep, and so for kicks and giggles, he, he decided to play a joke on uh, all the townspeople, and uh, his job was to watch, and if there was a wolf that came to devour the sheep, he was supposed to cry wolf, and of course, all the townspeople would come and help him, and so being bored, he decided it'd be fun to play a trick, and so he cried wolf, and all the townspeople came, and he said, ha I'm just joking, there's there's no wolf. He did it again and again. And then one day, the townspeople came to the realization that this kid was just playing games, and so we're not going to take him seriously. And so the boy cried wolf one day when there actually was a wolf, and no one came. And of course, as the story goes, the, the boy got eaten by the wolf. And the moral of the story is, don't, don't play dumb games like that. Right? Well, in a sense, this is almost like a reverse of that story. For years, Saul of Tarsus is saying, Jesus is not the Christ. Don't worry. God has not come and appointed his Messiah. The end of days is not yet. We are not in the final time of the plan of God for his people. Jesus is not the Christ. Don't worry. Jesus is not the Christ. Don't worry. Jesus is not the Christ. Don't worry. And then he says, Jesus is the Christ. Better get saved. And so in the same way that the crowds people just were incredulous, 
The same way that people would come to a place where they would doubt and question the shepherd boy crying out wolf, his testimony for so many years had been one way that when he changed his, his position and he said, no, Jesus is the Christ, they were just as equally doubtful and suspicious and incredulous of the legitimacy of what Saul was saying. It's almost as though they were engaging in a common fallacy, a logical fallacy, from the Latin, tu coque, Latin expression which means literally you too or you also. It's a way of saying, you know what, uh, you should take your own medicine or you should follow the advice yourself that you're trying to give. And in terms of this fallacy, what it does is it dismisses the argument that's being made on the basis of the character of the one who's making the argument. For years, Saul has tried to stamp out the name of Jesus, and he is notorious. He's known not only in Christian circles, but clearly even the Jews in the synagogue, in Jewish circles, they know that this is what he is, this is what he's all about. And so as he comes to present the Christ, they pose these questions. They say, isn't this the guy who has made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And hasn't he come here for this exact purpose as well, to bring them bound before the chief priests? They won't take his argument because they're saying, you can't possibly be serious about this argument following Christ because you don't actually follow Christ. We know who you are. We know your background. So tell you what, Saul of Tarsus, why don't you just take a dose of your own medicine? You and I can relate really easily at this point. Sure, we're not guilty of trying to torture other believers. We're not guilty of trying to imprison people or kill people. Surely none of us have attended a stoning in our lives, let alone watched over the coats and the garments of those who participated in that stoning. But we've all done things that we are ashamed of, which, if known, and undoubtedly they are known to some of our colleagues, our friends, our family, we've all done things which, being known, we fear discredit our testimony to the truth of Jesus. God has called Saul to preach Jesus. Saul is preaching Jesus, and Jesus isn't being believed in. Did God make a mistake? Did he choose the wrong man? Is this all just a fool's errand? Look at the text. And it's right about this point. We're about 20 minutes in. It's right about this point that I know as a church, some of us tend to get a little sleepy and we start to check out. Don't go out of here and say, oh, the sermon today was about how God chose the wrong man when he chose Saul. That's not what I'm saying, okay? Just keep on trucking with me. Just keep on trucking. There's more to the text. Verse 22. But Saul increased all the more in strength. He increased in strength. And it says he confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Three words there. He grew in strength, 
He confounded the Jews, and he proved that Jesus was the Christ. A while back, I read an account of uh, Catherine Labresco, a former atheist who became a follower of Jesus who attended Yale University. Uh, She recounts of her time at Yale that she decided after her first semester that she wanted to uh, join the debating society, the YPU, the union, uh, the Yale Political Union was its official name, but it was, a ba- it was essentially a debating society that taught its members, uh, it gave them opportunities to debate and to refine their presentations and their manner and method of argumentation. And unlike other debating clubs, it's vital to note that um, this particular society didn't keep track of points It's not as though there were judges that were tracking how well you did and were giving a points for how well you defended the position to which you were assigned, which is actually quite common amongst debating societies. No, no, the YPU didn't keep track of any of that stuff, but the members did, not in terms of how well they presented their arguments or how well they defended their positions. The members of the Yale Political Union kept track by counting converts. Catherine Labresco comments, at the end of a debate, no one won, and there were no points awarded, but we did keep score, she says. We counted in converts. That is, what really mattered was that you actually won someone over to your position, not necessarily to the position you were signed for the evening, but to something that you actually believed in. Now, it would be more accurate to say that winning someone over was one of two things that mattered to this particular debating society. The other was being won over yourself. Members who interviewed for leadership within the YPU were asked a couple of questions in their leadership interview before they would be uh, installed as officers within the society. First question was, have you ever in their parlance, broken someone on the floor. It's their way of saying, in the midst of debate, did you ever convince someone right there in the middle of your discussion of your position that you believed in? Did you break them on the floor of the debate? And the second question that they would ask is, have you ever been broken on the floor? Labresco goes on to say that if you wanted to be a leader in the Yale Political Union Debating Society, the correct answer to this question, she says, was always yes. She goes on to explain. It's impossible that you would walk into the Yale Political Union with the most accurate, most correct politics, ethics, or meta-ethics all the things that we debate. It was impossible for you as a freshman or as a sophomore, a year one, year two university student joining this particular society to walk in fully, fully right and completely accurately correct in all of your beliefs. Which means that when you were asked the question, have you ever been broken on the floor? That is, have you ever been converted to someone else's position? If you didn't answer yes, then the conclusion was that we would, she goes on to say, we would have our doubts about how honestly you were engaging in the intellectual debate. In other words, were you more sure 
of yourself? Or were you more interested in the truth? And if you never changed your position on anything, the conclusion that Libresco says they would come to is that you just weren't being honest when you engaged in these debates. We find as we look at Saul that what is considered a weakness by his adversaries, namely his past history of persecuting Christ, Christ uses it as a strength. This is a man who has engaged honestly with the truth of who Jesus is. This is a man who has considered carefully the claims of Christ. And in a very literal way, Christ himself on the floor of debate, also known as the road to Damascus, broke him on the floor. And he knew that Jesus, as the text says, he knew that Jesus was the Son of God. And so he argues, growing in strength, not allowing his past history, his past record to be a detriment, but standing on it as further evidence of the goodness and the truthfulness of who Jesus is. Standing on it, the text says he increased all the more in strength and he confounded, notice that word, he confounded the Jews by proving that Jesus was the Christ. This word confound, this is a word that we could, it's a lesser strong word than um, existanto. It also means to shock or to surprise. Its root meaning is to trouble, to cause trouble. Paul goes into the synagogues. He preaches that Jesus is the Christ. And surely the Jews had their stock-ready reply. In fact, many of the talking points that the Jews would have responded with to discredit the notion that Jesus was the Christ would have been written by Saul. Here he is now, Saul of Tarsus, coming up against Jews and trained exegetes of the Old Testament scriptures, and he's here to say that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the prophecies regarding the Messiah, and these guys, they know how to answer it. They've been dealing with this issue for a number of years, and they've had great teachers like Saul teaching them. And so Saul encounters, I'm sure, some of the very same arguments he himself made regarding Jesus. And yet, knowing those arguments and having encountered Christ, he knows exactly how those arguments were wrong. And so he, as the word says, troubled them. Their stock answers, their ready replies, didn't just sail over so smoothly with Saul of Tarsus. He argued back which should tell us something else. We are reluctant to share our faith with those who know us best because we think that they know us too well and they'll never believe. We see in the life of Saul that Jesus stands on his own merit and he is to be argued as the truth apart from our life's circumstances. The text goes on to say he proved that Jesus was the Christ. In our postmodern age, Truth has become a thing that is not real. It it seems to be that everyone is allowed to have their own truth and that we are no longer capable of agreeing on basic facts of reality. We've lost the ability to argue with each other 
in a manner that is striving after the truth. Because for the most part, those who reject the idea of absolute truth don't like what that truth really claims. Yet the text here says that Saul proved that Jesus was the Christ, which means that he was able to engage in debate in such a way. And if you ever study formal logic, you will know that there are still ways, there are ways of debating and arguing in which you establish certain premises. You argue for the truth of those premises. And from those premises, you walk logically along a series of deductions to where you arrive at a particular conclusion. And then you further, you bring in additional arguments such that when you get to that conclusion, as you surround that conclusion with additional supporting arguments, it becomes, if you're engaging in an intellectually honest way, it becomes irrefutable, such that you can prove certain things. Saul did just that, arguing in the synagogues of Damascus with the Jews who knew all about his past. You say, what was the argument? What worked at the end of the day? We don't know the exact nature of Saul's debating. We're not really sure how he went about it, but there is one clue in the text I want you to look back. Look back at verse 20. This is the clue which Luke gives us. It says, Immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. This is the first time this particular phrase is used anywhere in the book of Acts. We have the preaching of Peter. We have the preaching of Stephen. Over and over again, they say Jesus is the Christ or Jesus is the Messiah. But Saul of Tarsus, arguing with Jews in a synagogue in Damascus, is the first in Luke's recounting of the church, of the history of the early church. He is the first to use the expression Son of God, that is, begotten of God. C.S. Lewis has an interesting comment. He says that uh, when we beget something, we are saying that there is something that is in our likeness and in our nature. He says, he goes on to illustrate this point. He says, you know, baby seals beget other baby seals. Uh, Lions beget other lions and people beget other people. And he contrasts that with things that we create. Men create houses. Men create artwork. Men create literature. Men create things that though they may bear some resemblance of the mind or the heart of the person who creates it, they are yet still fundamentally different than the person who created it. But when we beget a child, that child is as we are, with a heart, soul, and mind, just like us, having an essence like our own. And what the scripture says regarding Jesus, John 3.16 He is God, begotten of God. This is attempting to hold two truths in tension. God is eternal. He is infinite. He has no beginning and no end. And yet he comes into this world fully a man. God begetting God amongst the human race to walk among us. If you're the Jews... And you've had this pesky church for however many previous years up until this point arguing that Jesus is the Christ. A Jewish understanding is 
Jesus could be the Christ, but perhaps we are to look for another that might more that might more fully and completely fulfill all of the prophecies. They say, well, yeah, he's a good man, great prophet, moral teacher, performed miracles, but he's not necessarily the Christ. And Saul's argument is, he's the son of God. He is God. God has come to this earth. God himself has walked among us. God himself has come to his people, Israel. If we are to look for another, if there is some other man that's going to more fully fulfill all of these prophecies and all of these uh, predictions regarding the Christ, would it not be that person greater than God himself? And such a thing being logically impossible, when we argue that Jesus is the Son of God, then there really is no one else that could be the Messiah because God himself is our Messiah. That was the argument that Saul was making to the Jews of synagogue. That was the point he was hammering home, not merely on the testimony of the apostles who walked with him, not merely on his own testimony of having encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus, but he was arguing that Jesus was, in fact, the Son of God from the Scriptures, from the things that Jesus himself claimed. And it didn't really matter at the end of the day who Saul of Tarsus was because this truth was proven. Jesus is the Son of God. And that is the truth you must hope in as well. 1 John chapter 5, verse 12. Don't flip there, just listen. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son of God has life. He who has not the Son of God does not have life. First John 2.23, no one who denies the Son of God has the Father. He who confesses the Son has the Father also. The Apostle John, writing in his letters to the churches, 1 John, argues the point that accepting Jesus, not merely as a good man, not merely as a great prophet or a miracle healer, but accepting Jesus as God is crucial to your salvation. Understanding who he is, truly, not merely as a man, but as fully a man, and as fully God, that belief is necessary to having forgiveness with God the Father. That belief is necessary to having eternal life. Do you believe in that? Do you? Because if you do, if that truth really grabs your heart, that undeniable and provable truth, that Jesus is God, the Son of God. If you really understand what that means, then your past does not matter. All that you have come from, good or bad, whether you are the worst sinner or your life before Jesus was as holy and as admirable as Mother Teresa, it does not matter. 
None of it, good or bad, does not matter when you understand that Jesus is God. At the end of the day, what matters is hoping in God. The Apostle Saul did not allow his background of being a persecutor of the church to hold him back for proclaiming Jesus. Rather, he hoped in the Son of God for the forgiveness of his sins. And what we see is that Jesus not only forgave Saul's sins, listen, church, listen, he redeemed his life. Rather than whitewashing all that he had been through and all that he had done, Jesus took it in all of its ugly, raw grittiness, and he used it in order to bear witness to his glory and who he was. Your past life is not a detriment to your testimony. If you think that way, it's because you fail to understand just exactly who it is that Jesus is, who he is, and what he's done for you. No, your past life belongs to him now. It's his. And he already knows all about it. He already knows all that you've done. And in the face of all of that, his grace is sufficient for washing you of your sins. Look at what happens next. Pick it up. Chapter 9, verse 23. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. The text says, after some days, he was with the disciples. After some days, he immediately proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue. He obviously wasn't received well, but it wasn't a once and done, well, I did my duty. I went there one time. I shared the truth, and they didn't really like it much, so adios, sayonara. I've done my part. No, it says he kept going, and after many, many days, the Jews plotted to kill him. It appears that they did not heed his testimony. It appears that they didn't give credence to the things he was proclaiming to them. You might be tempted to conclude at this point that Saul of Tarsus was a failure, but something happens here. Verse 24, their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. Verse 25, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall. Notice that. Whose disciples? His disciples. Saul's disciples. It is true that his proclamation of the gospel resulted in persecution and hatred. We see that. We see that they wanted to kill him. But we also see that the means of his rescue came through his preaching of Jesus. It was his friends that had claimed faith in, in Christ who risked their necks to help him escape when his neck was on the line. We tend to look at the world around us. And for some of us, if we're being brutally honest, our greatest fear is that we might actually have to talk about Jesus. But for Saul, recorded for us in 1 Corinthians, he says that his greatest fear was that someday 
he would be found to be disqualified from preaching the name Jesus. For you and me, we're often afraid we'd have to talk about Jesus. For Saul of Tarsus, he was afraid that the day might come in which he would no longer be allowed to talk about Jesus. As you're thinking about the very people that God has called you to share your faith with, your neighbors, your family, your coworkers, your colleagues, you tend to think in terms of their rejection of you. But understand that the blessing is presented to us in this text that it is the preaching of the gospel that is going to win to your side some of the greatest friends you will ever know. There is a blessing there for you if you would be faithful to the Lord. We need to understand that it is Christ who is true over and above the faults and the failures of the messengers. Going back to that article regarding Jeffrey Dahmer, as I had mentioned, he was murdered in November, the day after Thanksgiving, American Thanksgiving in 1994. There was an additional article written about him again in the Milwaukee Sentinel. Roy Ratcliffe was interviewed for the article. They questioned him. They said, was Dahmer really serious? I mean, he's dead now, but what, what do you think? Was he real? Was this a real profession of faith? Ratcliffe responds, nearly everyone raises the question about Jeff's sincerity. But I was there, and these questioners were not. He says, I deal with people who want to be baptized all the time. Knowing for certain the sincerity of the one requesting baptism is impossible. And I can relate to that. As a pastor here at First Baptist and before here at Bridge Baptist, I have baptized people whom, when I spent extensive amounts of time with them, they seemed utterly and completely sincere in their faith and their devotion to Jesus Christ. Only a short time after, or in some instances a couple of years after, to walk away from the faith. I have sat down with people and I've sat with people that wanted to be baptized and when I asked them, they had no understanding of the gospel. I said, you know what? I want to encourage you. It's great that you want to give your life to the Lord. Let's continue to focus in on the gospel. I've had people come who understood the gospel completely and yet it was clear they had no desire really knowing who Jesus is to follow Christ. Here you have a serial killer who's contacted a minister who's saying, I have decided to follow Jesus and I want to be baptized. And the minister is testifying that it's impossible to know with absolute certainty whether or not someone is sincere. And I can relate to that. But he goes on and he says, I listened to Jeff's words and I watched his eyes and I studied his body language. I listened to the tone of his voice and I observed his mannerisms. And I am convinced that he was totally sincere in his desire to trust in Jesus. Again, We'd like to hope that that is true. But there was a line in the article that stood out to me, which gave me great joy and great encouragement. It says that there was, after he was killed in November of 94, it says that there was a memorial service held for Jeff on Saturday at the prison, which was attended by his family, several Christians, Roy Ratcliffe, the minister, and notice this. Two sisters of one of his victims 
who had grown close to Dahmer since their brother's death. This man murdered your brother, and you're going to his funeral. I studied in vain to find out more about these sisters. As a result of confidentiality laws, there was no information disclosed about them. I found in a Christianity Today article from 1996, these two sisters, it is reported, it is alleged, and I, I could not substantiate this. I looked, but I couldn't, I couldn't find corroborating sources. But it was suggested in the Christianity Today article that Dahmer had written to his victims, their surviving relatives, apologizing and asking for forgiveness and sharing with them that he had trusted in Jesus Christ. There is nothing to be gained in terms of earning extra benefits, getting more lenient treatment from the guards. No one knows about these letters that Dahmer allegedly wrote. They are largely unsubstantiated. And yet, we see that at least for one of his victims, these two sisters, they attended his funeral. Church, whether or not Jeffrey Dahmer became a Christian will be finally revealed to us one day when we stand before the Lord. But don't underestimate the power of the gospel. It has saved your life and whatever your life looks like. It has redeemed that life. And it can be used to transform the hearts of others. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for Saul of Tarsus. We thank you, God, for his commitment to you, his faithfulness to you to walk with you, to trust in you, to obey you. Lord, I pray that as we encounter this text this morning, that we would be challenged and encouraged, Father, not to be afraid of our past, but to trust you more fully with all that we are and who we are. I pray, God, that if there are any here today who do take so much joy in you, who do delight in you, who have for the longest time wanted to talk about you with family members or relatives, but have been afraid to do so, I pray, God, you'd encourage them this morning through your word, by your spirit. I pray, God, that you would strengthen their testimony and that they would find an even deeper joy, an even deeper pleasure in proclaiming the sweet name of Christ. Not only for the pleasure of knowing you more, but also for the added blessing of meeting new brothers and sisters who will be transformed by their testimony. I pray, God, you'd strengthen our church to be faithful to that task. And we just say thank you for dying on the cross, forgiving us of our sins, and for making us sons and daughters of the Most High. We praise you, God, and we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.